Good morning. It is good to be here. If you were not in the announcements this morning, uh, my name is Joe Johnson, and I am the RUF campus minister at Mississippi State. Um, been there for a whole three weeks, so if you've been worried about RUF at Mississippi State, don't be. I'm not overwhelmed at all. I'm fully in control. Um, but it is really good to be here this morning. We have a lot of friends in this congregation, and, um, and I love your pastor. Uh, there's a joke in our family that whenever Les Newsom calls, uh, we move. And he called me uh, as a newly married man to change our plans from seminary to stay at RUF at Auburn, and then called later to move us to Birmingham, and then called recently to think about Mississippi State. And so when I get home uh, from my day and my wife asks me how my day went, if I ever say, well, I heard from Les today, she gets very nervous. She does not want to move again. Um, but it is really good to be here. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 13. Psalm 13. And it is a good time to be in the Psalms right now. The Psalms are God's unique gift to his people. He gives us a lot of things in the Bible. He gives us law. He gives us narrative. He gives us epistles. He gives us prophetic literature, but I think one of the most unique and amazing things that God gives us, maybe unexpectedly, is that he gave his people songs to sing. And they are his songs that he gave us to sing, and what they do is they articulate the deepest longings of our souls, the deep heart emotions that we don't even understand. They give words to our highest of highs and our lowest of lows. They give us words to our worship and also our anger, fear, sadness, and doubt. Uh, they are the words that we need when we don't understand life and we don't even understand ourselves. And so when we come to a psalm, really the question that we have to ask is, what is God asking us to sing about here? And more often than not, that answer is kind of surprising. Like in Psalm 13, where he calls us to sing our sadness. Our sadness. He calls us actually to sing about that more than any other thing in all of the Psalms, and I'm taking a pretty big risk here as a guest preacher to come with the heavy topic of sadness, not the most popular of topics, but maybe this is a time where we need to talk about sadness the most. There are a lot of things to be sad about. The only question is, how do we do it as God's people? So with that in mind, let's read our passage together, Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we're your people. This is your book. And more than anything, we want to know you. And so, Lord, help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the encouraging things I've seen in our world is a cultural shift towards vulnerability. Where maybe before there were certain topics that were not okay to discuss or disclose about yourself. I feel like in the last maybe decade or so, vulnerability has kind of become an okay thing. Being vulnerable, that not everything's okay. That there are some things going on in my life that I don't know 
what to do with. It comes from a lot of different places. A woman named Brene Brown and her writing and work has been very helpful in this. But I think one of the most tangible ways I've seen it is in the movies that my children watch. I have a five-year-old and a, and a two-year-old, almost two-year-old. And the movies they watch are much different than the movies that I watched as a kid. The movies that I remember as a kid were about you know, perfect superheroes that were bulletproof and always saved the day, and princesses that were beautiful and were always saved. But, but the movies that my kids watch ask questions of them that I would have never known what to deal with at their age. We are a huge Pixar family. I know many people are. We watched um, Soul the other night. It was amazing. I had never seen a movie like that as a kid that, that made my daughter think about things in a deep way. But the movie that I think does this the best, Push Towards Vulnerability, is the movie Inside Out. One of my favorite movies. When it's ever family movie night, that's the one I usually pick. Inside Out, if you've ever seen it, you should. It's a movie about a young girl named Riley who has a family move. Her family moves from, I believe, Michigan or somewhere cold to San Francisco. And the movie plays out not so much outside of her, but actually inside of her brain, her emotions. And her emotions are characterized by these funny characters that depict her anger and her fear and her sadness, her disgust and her joy. And I think the thing I related most to this movie is I moved around a lot as a kid. And I remember how hard it was. And so in this move, the trauma of her move, two emotions get lost into the abyss. And it's joy and sadness. And the whole movie, they are trying to get joy back to Riley. But the thing that she needs most in this really hard time is to be happy again, right? But actually, and kind of spoiler here, but it's been out for a while, so I feel comfortable. The thing that she needs most at the end, in this really hard season, is not joy. The thing that she actually needed most was sadness. This emotion, this character that no one knew what was good for. Why would we need sadness? We only need joy. But in the end, this young girl needed to process what was going on by being sad. But maybe sad is being a part of the healthy person. My daughter watches that, and actually we just moved from, Starkville, or from Birmingham to Starkville, Mississippi. Very different. And every now and then over breakfast, she'll say to me, like, Dad, I'm sad we moved. And I kind of love that she can say that, that she has the vulnerability to just kind of name it and claim it, I'm sad right now. But as encouraged as I am by stuff like that, when I look maybe at the church, or at my students, or even at my own heart, there's still resistance to sadness. That I don't want to deal with that side of my heart, I don't really want to deal with that emotion, I don't really want to talk about it, I just kind of want to move on. Or worse, I want to put my best foot forward, have a smile on my face, and say that everything is okay. But what if our emotions are more useful than we think? Dan Allender, who I'm going to quote pretty good amount this morning, from the book The Cry of the Soul, writes this, that our emotions are the very language of the soul. They're the cry that gives our voice, our heart a voice. To understand our deepest passions and convictions, we must learn to listen to the cry of our soul. What if our sadness tells us something about us and about God? But even more than that, what if sadness is not a bad thing at all? What if sadness is actually something that we need? And what if there was an art to it, a way to be good at it? And that actually in our sadness, we experience Jesus in a unique way that all of us need. What if we're actually called as God's people to be good at being sad? Well, what does that look like? I think that's what Psalm 13 is leading us to. 
that God, if you notice this psalm, that God actually calls us to sing this. This is congregational singing, to sing our sadness and teaches us how are we to be good at being sad. So what does it mean to be sad? It means a three-step process. It means to complain well, to ask well, and to despair well. I outlined on your bulletin, I typed the email way too fast to whoever asked me for my points. That last point, despair well, is supposed to have quotes around it. It's not going to end as depressing as it looks on your sheet. But there is a way to despair well. So first, the first step in sadness is to complain. The first two verses of this psalm is the complaint. David brings his complaint to the Lord and says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Sometimes when you read a psalm, especially when you read it quickly, it just sort of sounds psalmy. That's just normal language that we find in this book. But when you actually slow down and read this, these first two verses, this is pretty intense. Like, this is pretty angry. This is pretty insulting to who God is, right? This is accusatory language. And the first thing that we have to kind of ask here is, what do we do with this? Are we comfortable with this? I don't know your experience in sort of small group prayer or prayer meetings or anything like that, but you don't hear people pray like this. And if I did, if I'm honest, if I heard someone pray like this, I would be tempted to sort of like slowly back out of the room a little bit. Of are we allowed to say this? But one of the greatest things about this text is that God gives it to us. This is his word for us to say. And so, as intense as this is, there is a lot of encouragement from these first two verses. And the first encouragement, I think, is this. Is that the very presence of these verses in the Bible show us that God assumes our sadness. He knows we have it. He's not surprised by it. C.S. Lewis once said that sadness is the great equalizer. It visits us all. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're across the world or here this morning, the question is not if you will experience deep grief and sorrow. The question is, what is your deep grief and sorrow? God is not surprised by the sad hearts of his people. He assumes it and gives us the words to say. But the second bit of encouragement from these first two verses is a little bit deeper. It's not just that God assumes our sadness, but that he deeply understands our sadness. That he can give us the words to articulate what we really feel and what we really want to say. Derek Kidner is a commentator on the Psalms, and, and he wrote, actually talking about this Psalm, but other laments. He said, the very presence of laments in the Bible and the abundance of them show the depth of God's understanding of his people's grief. He knows our sadness better than we do. He knows our emotions better than we do and gives us the words to articulate it, to bring it to him. And the craziest thing about this, God gives us this. He wants you to say this to him. And the question we have to ask is why? Why this intensity? Why not flower it up a little bit? Why not soften the blow? Why is it this insulting and this intense? Why does he call us to complain like this? I think the answer is that when we bring our raw complaints to God, we will never be disappointed with his answer. When we bring what we are really feeling, what we are really experiencing, we will never be disappointed with his response. Because what's his response to this? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? I will never forget you. I am your covenant God. 
who's united himself with his people. He will never leave. How long will you hide your face from me? I will not. I will be with you. How long must I take counsel by myself and my soul? No, I am with my people, even in the midst of their grief. How long will this go on? God's answer to that is one day, someday, it will come to a conclusion when he makes all things right. He wants us to bring our hard questions and our difficult emotions to him. Because one thing that we will find, that when we bring our sadness, our true sadness, the depth of our grief to God, what we will find is that he cares more about those things than we do. That he is as sad about his broken world and the pain of his people than we are. This past summer, you might lose respect for me for saying this, but this past summer, I read for the very first time the Chronicles of Narnia. I love C.S. Lewis, read most of his nonfiction stuff. I, I never read Chronicles of Narnia as a kid. I heard it quoted in sermons, but I never really read it. And so this past summer, I had more time than usual and wanted something a little lighter, so I picked it up. And I love his dedication at the very beginning of that series. He dedicates it to his daughter and says, you know, you're too old for fairy tales now, but one day you'll be old enough again to love them. And I think that's where I found myself as a 32-year-old, to pick up a few children's books and get lost in a fairy tale. And one of my favorite parts, maybe you've heard this before, read it before, is in The Magician's Nephew, when the boy Diggory, who sort of stumbles across Narnia, and throughout the whole book goes on this grand adventure, but in the end, he, he's in front of Aslan, the, the lion, the god figure of the book, the one whom everyone has their hope in to make things right again. And he's before this lion, and he just can't help himself but to think about his mom who's dying in his world. And he says, Aslan, can you not do anything to save my mom? And he looks into the great lion's eyes and sees something shocking. That in this great lion's eyes are these great big tears. Tears so big that Lewis notes that it made the boy think that the lion cared more about his mom than he did. What if when we bring our complaints and sadness to Jesus that he cares more about it than we do? What if he cares more about your depression than you do? What if he cares more about our worries and our sadness about our family than we do? What if he is more pained about the brokenness of this world than we are? What do you need to complain to God about today? To bring to him and say, I'm really sad over this. How long will this virus keep going on? How long will my family be in disarray? How long will I struggle with this depression? How long must I deal with this pain of a lost friend? Because when you bring those questions, you will never be disappointed with his answer. We complain. As Christians, we are good at complaining to God. Bring, his, bring your sadness to him. But then secondly, we don't just complain. We also ask. So this next two verses, verses 3 and 4, are what we call the petition. David brings his problem to God, his great sadness to God, and then asks him of something. And it might be different than we expect. Verse 3 Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now if we think about this for a second, we should be surprised that this is what David asks. I mean, David's a real ancient Near Eastern king. And so when he brings up his enemies, he is not sort of talking about figurative enemies. He's actually talking about invading armies that want him dead. Or worse, people in his own kingdom who are trying to kill him to get his throne. And so what I would expect, and if I were David, 
in these two verses, I would have asked for something a little more specific. Would you fix this problem? Would you conquer my enemies? Would you end this disruption in my kingship so I can get about my normal duties? And though he does ask God for an answer and does bring about his enemies, what he asks for is actually something much better. Think about it. He says, consider and answer me. O Lord, my God, light up my eyes. Consider me. Remember me. That's covenantal language. Remember me, your people. You've promised to be our God, and you've promised that we'll always be your people. Remember me. Answer me. Give ear to me. Give word to me. Give some sort of hope. And attune my heart to see your work in here. Light up my eyes to what you're doing. Because what I hear in David's voice here is that he is looking out at his world, his life, and he sees nothing good. Only sadness, only grief. And he goes before the Lord to say, I know you're at work in this, I just don't see it. And so show me. Show me that this is not for nothing. That this is for a purpose and that you're at work for something good because I don't see it. You ever wanted to pray that? It's not a bad prayer. But what I think is underneath that is that David is simply asking, God, will you be with me in this sadness? When are we most sad? What does our sadness most call out for? To not be alone. I think this is why this is a congregational hymn. He invites us not just to sing our sadness privately, but to sing it and bear it with one another. And the thing that we want most in our grief is to know that we are not alone. So often in my prayer life, I ask for band-aid prayers. They're not bad. I'm not belittling them. But most of the time when I pray, I just want God to fix the thing I'm worried about. To fix the thing I'm sad about. God, would you, we're having some issues with my son speaking. He's, he's almost two years old. He's not really saying much. God, would you just make him talk? God, would you just like end this season of depression in our family? God, would you just put more money in our ministry account so I don't have to worry about that anymore? Would you just fix it? And those aren't bad prayers. We need to pray for those things. But that's not the thing that I need the most. That actually the deepest problem in my life is not in the circumstances around me, though I hope God fixes those things for you. The deepest problem in my heart is I don't believe God loves me. The deepest problem in my heart is doubting that he's at work. The deepest problem in my heart is not believing that he's there with me. And then actually David here cries out, consider me, answer me, be with me. Isn't that what you want in the deepest of grief? To not be alone and to have Jesus there doing something in your heart to make you see him more clearly. My daughter is um, five years old. And she doesn't do this as much anymore, though she did this yesterday. Um, she always asks for Band-Aids. That's just sort of the thing that she always wants, right? Whether it's a real um, medical, you know, emergency that she needs a Band-Aid, she fell off her bike, or whether it's just the mysterious boo-boo with no bruise, no blood, no redness, just wants a Band-Aid. And they're kind of stickers because they have princesses on them and all those things. And I get pretty frustrated with it. Because the band-aids are usually on the other side of the house, and I don't want to go get it, and she doesn't even need it anyways, and she's going to take it off in a few minutes and ask for another one. And so I'm pretty impatient with her. But here's what I'm beginning to learn, and my wife is so much better at this than I am, is that she's not really asking for a band-aid in those moments. 
what I think she's asking for is for me to slow down and to see her. What I think she's actually asking for is her dad to put down the the false sense of self-importance and busyness and to stoop low and, yes, maybe bring a Band-Aid and to see her and to empathize with her and to love her. That's what she's asking for. She's asking for the presence of her father. Isn't that what we all want in our grief? That he really is there? That he really is at work? And you might not know what he's doing. The grief and sadness may never come to fruition. You say, oh, that's why he did it. Now I get it. But isn't it good to know that that that's what he is doing? Working. Is that what you ask in your prayer? For his very presence. Consider me. Remember me. Answer me. Attune my heart to your work. May we ask for the right thing in our prayers. But then lastly, we complain and we ask. But then lastly, we despair well. And again, I apologize for the language here. That, but what I'm getting at is what I think we avoid sadness for. The reason why we avoid sadness is that we probably think it's a waste of time. That if we're to talk about our sadness or dwell on our sadness or try to process our sadness, that that's just a road of wallowing in self-pity that leads to despair and there's nothing we can do, so we might as well keep going forward. And we might struggle with that. But I actually wonder if there is a better kind of despairing. Uh, Dan Allender, again, from his book Cry of the Soul, says this. He defines godly despair. That godly despair is the collapse of the self-will. It is the surrender to a reality that we are powerless to consummate, to make things perfect, but that we are granted by his grace an opportunity to play a part in his redemption. And that in this way, despair, godly despair, catapults us not to a dark abyss, but into the bright presence of God. This godly despair, I think, is what David does in the last two verses. Because what we're tempted to read in these last two verses is that he just ends on a positive note to kind of tie a nice little bow around his sadness as if to say everything's all right. But listen to his language. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's not just fake language that everything's okay. This is a man practicing godly despair, and here's what I mean. He starts out by saying, how long will I be alone? And what does he end saying? I trusted in your steadfast love, in your salvation, because you have dealt bountifully with me. Where his sadness leads him is to give up on himself, to despair in himself, that I can't do anything about this. I can't fix this problem. I can't fix the thing I'm sad about. I can't bring back my friend. I can't conjure up a cure to depression. I can't fix this world. And he assumes the Christian posture of I can't, but God, you can. It's almost as if his sadness leads him through this journey where he lifts his eyes off the thing going on around him and lifts them to his heavenly Father who promises to make everything right one day. One day, someday, all things made new. It's despairing in ourselves that leads us to see the power of God. And it's actually biblical sadness, godly sadness, that leads us to see the one that Isaiah calls the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And that it's godly sadness that leads us to the one that when he saw his friend die and the pain that his sisters felt, he wept. 
moments before raising him from the dead. And not that long before he conquered death itself, overwhelmed in sadness, he wept with his people. What a godly sadness leads us to is the one that Revelation 21 says will wipe away every tear from our eye. That the first order of business in the new heavens and new earth is that God will wipe our tears away. He will do it himself like a father stooping low to wipe hot tears off his children's cheeks as if to say, I will make this right. That all sadness will come untrue. But don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the gospel is true so we shouldn't be sad anymore and get over it. What I actually think Psalm 13 is getting at is because the gospel is true, we are free to be sad. That because Jesus will make all things right, that that's the end of our story, that we are actually free to lament and grieve. That because he's washed us in his blood, that because he's clothed us in a righteousness that's not our own, because we have true hope, We are allowed to despair in ourselves and say, I don't know what to do, but I trust you. And it's in that kind of sadness that we get to experience Jesus in a very unique way in his work in our hearts. There's a woman in our congregation. This is our congregation actually in Birmingham. A woman that I probably respect more than anybody else alive. And I was talking to her about our family move from Birmingham to Starkville. And I was worried, experiencing moves in my life, I didn't want to do that to my kids. And so I was talking to her about it. And she told me a story that when she was a young girl, her dad moved them around a lot. And different towns, and rooting down, and then being plucked out. And she said it was incredibly painful, and she hated it. And so when she got older and had her kids, she never wanted to move. So they stayed in the same house in Birmingham all throughout their children's childhood, still there now as grandparents. But she told me this. That when she moved around a lot as a kid and experienced a lot of that pain, though she hated it, she actually said that that's how she met God. And that she experienced his nearness and his love and his care in ways unimaginable, and she wouldn't have if she hadn't have moved so much. And so she said as she thinks about her kids, she didn't want them to experience that pain. But then she said, but maybe I denied them knowing God like that. You only get that kind of wisdom from someone in their 60s, by the way, because she's right. What if our sadness leads us to experience Jesus in a unique way that we need? Like, I want my students to be sad. I want my student in Mississippi State whose dad has never told her that he loves her, never uttered the words. I want her to be sad about that because that leads her To actually see that the cry of her soul is to know her loving Heavenly Father and that He loves her and will never stop. I want my friends to be sad that have lost loved ones because in that sadness, it leads them to the hope of the one who's conquered sin and death and who will usher in the final resurrection and shut death forever. I want to be sad. When I see injustice in this world, When I see the virus effects, when I see my own sin, when I see actually me hurting my family, I want to be sad. Because that sadness leads me to drop my self-Messiah complex and to actually see the one who is able to make all things right. Our sadness leads us to Jesus. That's what Psalm 13 is telling us. 
And one more point of application as we close. That as Christians, we are uniquely gifted to be sad because the gospel's true. And if we practice in the art of being sad, here's what we're able to do for others. We are able to enter into their sadness. Not uncomfortably. Not in the way that I want to do, which I'm just going to say a joke and everyone's going to be okay. But to actually enter into their grief with them. And to be able to lead them through that process that they may see Jesus more clearly. To weep with those who weep. To mourn with those who mourn. That's what the church is good at. Are you sad? And if so, are you running to Jesus with it? Let me pray. Our great God in heaven, we look forward to the day where sadness is no more. Where there are no more tears and only your people living the life that they are created to live unhindered by sin. But in this broken world, there is sadness. And what our sadness is, is really just a recognition that the world is not made right yet. And so help us to grieve well with friends and family for our own lives and for our, our own traumas. But help us to find rest and giving up on ourselves and trusting in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.